Hotspot hosts are the most important part of the Helium ecosystem. That's why Fairspot gives 70% of mining revenue to our hosts, with payouts every Friday. Unlike other services that offer as little as 20% and keep the rest to themselves, we put you first by sending you a free hotspot and giving you your fair share of the earnings. No referral programs, no hype. Just a shared mission to grow the Helium network and empower you to monetize your airspace without any upfront investment. Learn more at fairspot.host. Welcome to the Hotspot. I'm your host, Armand Desfouli Arjamandi. Today, we have a conversation with Tashar Jain. Tashar is co-founder and managing partner at Multicoin Capital, a crypto-focused, thesis-driven investment firm, which co-led Helium's $15 million Series C round along with Union Square Ventures. He's also the founder of the DY Alliance, a governing body for decentralized wireless initiatives. Previously, he was the founder of health tech startup ePatient Finder, which was acquired by Elego Health Research. And before that, he graduated from NYU with degrees in finance and political science. Tashar, welcome to the show. Hey, Armand, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you here. You know, I was first introduced to you by just hanging out in the Helium community chat, but I had no idea you were an investor in the company. I just thought you were some guy who was really enthusiastic about the project and wanted to help educate people and debate issues within the community, kind of like myself. And I was shocked when I saw you casually mentioned to some person who was either doubting the project or doubting you on some topic that you were just trying to create the best outcome for your multi-million dollar investment. And I honestly thought you were joking, but then I looked you up and I was like, no, this guy really invested millions of dollars into Helium. Um, and it's so interesting and rare to see an investor involved so directly in such a public way. And considering how many other projects Multicoin has invested in, I think the amount of time and attention you devote says a lot about your belief in this project. So I want to know, how were you introduced to Helium? Did you find the project or the team first? And what was the first aha moment that led you to realize that this project is special? It's a good question. Um, we first met Amir back in late 2017, early 2018 timeframe. Um, and he, I believe he had reached out to us, um, actually to my partner, Kyle, um, and just, you know, casual conversation um, and talk about what you're building uh, type scenario. We mm -hmm. stayed in touch. You know, we were interested in what they were building, but there wasn't really anything for us to do at that point. Um, and we started to get much more engaged with them in early 2019 when um, Helium was ready to raise their Series C fundraising. And this was something that you know, they approached us about um, at Multicoin. We were quite interested in um, what they were building and what they were working on. And so once we kind of wrapped our minds around what Helium was building and how this ecosystem could come together, we started to get pretty excited. Uh, we called our friends up at Union Square Ventures, um, and we thought that this would fit for them as well. Uh, you know, they're a great investment firm that we like to partner with uh, on deals like this. Um, and so we call them up. Uh, they start to get excited about it as well. And, uh, you know, we were able to get a fundraising round done with Helium Inc. Um, in Q2 of last year. In June of last year, you yourself penned a post on Multicoin's blog titled Our Investment in Helium, which I highly recommend everyone read. And in the second paragraph, you wrote the following, quote, the Helium vision is the most ambitious we've seen in the blockchain space since the advent of smart contracts on Ethereum. Helium represents a fundamentally new approach, one with a radically reduced cost structure to deploying and managing wireless networks at scale, end quote. And you continue on to describe in plain English how the Helium model subverts the traditional telco model and I'm going to read this section out loud because I think you explained it really clearly. Quote, in order to understand how Helium aims to undercut the cost structure of existing cellular networks, we need to first consider the existing cost structures of the legacy model. One, incumbent network operators buy extremely expensive proprietary equipment. Two, they buy or lease the land for towers. Three, they pay people to install the radio equipment. Four, they maintain the radio equipment. Five, they maintain a massive 
back-end infrastructure for customer support, billing, etc. They spend aggressively on marketing and sales. Because all of this needs to happen before the network can produce any revenue, traditional telecom companies are extremely capital intensive. Helium will succeed by inverting the cost structure. One, consumers buy commodity hardware for hundreds of dollars. This hardware is 100% non-proprietary. Due to the economics of the Helium blockchain, Helium Inc.'s business model does not depend on extracting margin on hardware. Two, customers have free rent. Consumers, excuse me. Three, consumers plug and play hotspots in their homes and businesses. Labor cost is $0. Four, consumers maintain hotspots as necessary. Labor cost is $0. Five, through public key cryptography, blockchains naturally manage consumer accounts and billing for free. The Helium blockchain coordinates per byte micropayments between everyone permissionlessly. Now, new devices can connect to the network anywhere in the global coverage area without ever needing to sign up with a telecom company. This would be impossible on legacy payment rails. The result is the Helium network is an order of magnitude less expensive to build, deploy, and manage. And it's impossible to compete with. The network actually benefits as Chinese manufacturers build cheaper hotspots. Moreover, Helium Inc. itself could disappear and the network would continue operating." End quote. So you paint an optimistic picture of why the network should succeed here. And being an optimist myself, I get excited when I think about what you wrote, because once you see and understand the cost efficiency of the Helium model, it's hard not to think about this model superseding the entirety of public wireless infrastructure. So that being said, I'm super excited, and now I want you to try and kill my vibe. What are some of the biggest challenges that you think Helium faces in making this vision a reality? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, before I go there, I, I want to add a little bit more about uh, what I think was a pretty strong statement at the beginning of that quote, which is that this is the most ambitious uh, project that we've seen since Ethereum and smart contracts on Ethereum. And I want to explain why I think that. If you zoom way out, like think about uh, you know, what are blockchains good for? What is the point of this technology? And what it's really good at is coordinating disparate actors to all act in their own incentive, but to produce a system-wide outcome that none of the actors themselves could produce. To, to give you a very simple example, and you know, the first real blockchain ever with Bitcoin, uh, all of the miners are acting in their own incentive but by acting in their own incentive, they secure this giant global network of transactions to give you, you know, probably the most secure transactions in the world. Uh, and then the next most ambitious uh, project that launched was Ethereum, where Ethereum said, well, we don't need to just do payment transactions. What if we allow more interesting computation? And that was incredibly ambitious because it was building this world computer you know, unstoppable applications. Let's um, use the same kind of infrastructure um, in terms of miners to do that. The thing that made me really excited about Helium is I thought, well, what else could be peer-to-peer? -peer? What else really could benefit from removing this centralized middleman, right? Uh, the centralized middleman that Bitcoin removed is banks, central banks and commercial banks that, that move your money around and actually, you know, have your money. Uh, Ethereum, removes the centralized middleman of tech companies uh, that own your data and own the customer relationship rather than you and I interacting you know, directly. We might be interacting over some tech companies platform, let's say Zoom or Facebook, right? And, and Ethereum goes after that. And so Helium really goes after connectivity. What we really want is all the humans and machines and devices in the world to be connected and the traditional way that it's done is through these giant telecom companies. But that's just because centralized corporations are the best technology or social technology that we had to coordinate large wireless communications network or even wired communications networks. But now we have this new thing called blockchain, which allows us to coordinate these disparate actors uh, in order to create a global wireless network. And, and that's what really got me excited about Helium is 
It's going after a whole new category. There's so many projects in crypto. My full-time job is to keep up with everything going on in crypto and, and invest in projects that I think are promising. Uh, and we have a team that, that works on this all day, every day. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of things in crypto are the same. You know, there's a lot of people going after the same exact goals. The thing that got me really excited about Helium is that it is different. Yep. Um, it is actually truly unique. It's going after a different vision. It has no competitors really that, that I'm aware of. And I don't trust think me, I'm any. looking. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking as well. Um, and so that's what got me really excited. And that's why I made that really strong statement at the beginning of that quote. Yeah. And, and yeah, let's, let's stay on that for a minute because, you know, maybe we can have a little bit of positivity before we kill the vibe. Uh, I think you put in to words very clearly a feeling that I've had, uh, which I've been involved in various ways in crypto since the very beginning. I mean, I was mining Bitcoin in my dad's apartment in 2011. And, you know, being the investment genius I am, I sold it all at the peak at $32, right? Uh, but there have been a certain, there's been a certain feeling that I've gotten, and I've only gotten it a few times. And the first time was with Bitcoin of like, wow, this is a completely new, very interesting thing. Uh, and the second time was Ethereum, because it's like, oh, okay, there's this, there's this interesting thing, this decentralized sort of blockchain that now can run applications. And, you know, at the time in 2016, I wasn't really sure what it meant, but I knew I had a feeling that, that like this was going to be a pivotal technology. And I had not gotten that feeling again uh, until I discovered Helium about a year ago. And I, I really dug into it. And as you said, it's something completely new. It's something that if someone else were to try and attempt to copy it would take years. Helium has been on this journey for seven years. They've had a blockchain integrated into their product for at least a couple of years now. And they've created specialized hardware to accelerate the adoption of this decentralized wireless network, which is something unique that I just don't think is copyable. I think there's this idea that maybe since projects are open source that they can be copied, but I don't get the sense that Helium can be copied. Um, and I do get the sense that Helium is a unique opportunity to disrupt an industry in a way that no one's ever seen before. Yeah, on the point of not being copied, that's something that I'm very focused on. Um, and it's defensibility in the world of open source software. Um, and what we look for is what we call unforkable state. Uh, actually, mm. if you Google multi-coin unforkable state, you'll see a post that we wrote, which describes this. And so, you know, I, let, let me give you a simple example. I can fork Bitcoin. Lots of people have. It's actually not that hard. I can mm -hmm. call it Tushar coin. The problem is no one's going to mine my coin. No one wants it. And so there's just no network around it. There's no community around it. Same thing applies to helium. I can go fork helium uh, and I'll call it hydrogen or, or lithium or something. All right. Pick an uh, element. <laughs> but yeah, but the problem is it doesn't have the wireless network. So I can fork the, the blockchain, but unless it actually like has hotspots in people's houses all around the world and in offices and on top of buildings all around the world, the devices can connect to like, what good is the blockchain? It's only good for coordinating those other real physical things. Right. I think that makes complete sense. Yeah. It would be very hard for someone to start from zero and get to where helium is today, especially given the fact that, you know, there's a new batch of hotspots being delivered any day now. And the network is going to go from, 4,000 to 10,000 to 11,000 and, and just sort of increase from there, hopefully in an exponential manner. So I really don't see how anyone could, could come and supersede that. Yep. So I guess let's get to your question that, that you originally asked around, uh, you know, what are some of the, the biggest risks? Um, or I, I think you asked, you know, to kill your vibe. Yeah. Kill my vibe. Um, <laughs> so I think that there are a number of risks, of course. Uh, the first and, and largest risk is just technical risk. Uh, there's a lot of really hard technical details that need to be implemented and be stable and continue to work. And you know, I don't want to minimize how difficult this technology is to build. I think the Helium Inc. 
team, uh, engineering team is phenomenal in terms of what they've already built. Mm -hmm. They use a lot of very specialized technologies. You know, for example, uh, Helium is all in Erlang, which uh, is not that popular of a language, but it's actually very good for systems that cannot go down, that you never want it to go down. Right. Uh, I believe WhatsApp is also coded in Erlang for that same exact reason. Yep. You know, massively concurrent, uh, system doesn't go down, but you know, just fewer engineers know it. Um, and so it's just a very, very difficult system to actually build and uh, maintain as it grows. Um, and so that, that would be one thing that, that is a meaningful risk um, is just, you know, does the technology fall over one day? It, it seems unlikely to me, but, um, you know, there's, there's unknown unknowns. Um, and we, we don't know that the technology will work perfectly. Definitely. And I actually posted a question on Reddit about a month ago, asking this exact question to the community of, has there been a blockchain project in the past that has died just because it had technical issues? And people actually came up with some great answers. But the general theme that I saw was, when blockchains have technical issues, they can almost always be overcome uh, due to the existing network effects of those chains. So maybe if like some really small chain has a, a technical issue, maybe it just dies because the, the people working on it give up. But with a project that has so many stakeholders as Helium, I think if there were technical issues, the community and the company and all the investors would do everything possible to make sure that those technical issues were overcome. Uh, and indeed helium has overcome a lot of technical issues in the past. I mean, there have been times when the blockchain, the block times, you know, went to hours and at that, at this point, they're all like far in the past. And to me, it's been incredibly impressive how much, how good the uptime has been and how good just the technology, every part really of the, of the technology, the blockchain, the hotspots, the stability of everything has been remarkable given, as you said, uh, the specialized language that's being used that's not as necessarily as easy to hire for, right? Um, and just the sheer complexity of this project and creating a layer one blockchain with a brand new consensus model, which is another interesting thing. Um, to have it succeed so far has been really remarkable to watch, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, to be very clear, I do not view this as an existential threat. I view this as a, as a risk that things might go slower than we would like. Uh, but I, I do think that any technical problems that arise, any foreseeable technical problems um, can be solved in this case. Uh, the way I, I think about it is I have a framing of, does this technical problem require a fundamental computer science breakthrough in order to solve? Or is it just you know hard work that engineers need to do to implement technology that has already been invented? Um, and that's one of the things that I really liked about Helium is it doesn't, while it's a bunch of new technology and, and it's really powerful stuff, it's not uh, requiring fundamental computer science breakthroughs in order to make it happen. You know, unlike something like ETH2, like Ethereum 2.0 right. requires fundamental computer science breakthroughs. Like that stuff is really, really hard. You need to invent like this whole brand new like thing and no one's ever done it before and you don't have any examples and you spend most of your time in research um, and, and not even worrying about implementation because you need to theoretically prove that it works. <laughs> um, and, and so that's a different class of risk. That doesn't mean it's not possible. It's just a different class of risk. Right. Uh, something that's lower risk is knowing that like, hey, we have all of the different like Lego pieces or the, or the different puzzle pieces. We just have to like, put it together and it might take a really long time and be really hard work, but uh, we don't need to invent a new puzzle piece. Yeah, that, that's, that's a really good point. Um, and back to Multicoin for a second, you guys self-describe as a thesis-driven investment firm. And I really love Multicoin's thesis, which is the following. Crypto will create the largest one-time shift in wealth in the history of the internet. So I fully agree. And as Amir talked about in the first episode, it's amazing that the tokenization of assets has created an opportunity for everyday investors to get in on new technology early uh, in a way that they can't with traditional startups. Even if someone is rich enough to become an accredited investor, there's still a lot of friction there when it comes to finding teams to invest in, crafting relationships, dealing with all the paperwork. 
And as far as Multicoin is concerned, you guys are in some ways a traditional investment firm, but also have this very bold investment thesis and focus on blockchain and cryptocurrency projects exclusively. So are there some other investments that you guys have been working on and that you specifically have spent your days focused on other than Helium? Uh, other companies in your portfolio that you think have an interesting synergy with the Helium model or, or what Helium is trying to do? I mean, Helium is pretty unique, uh, to be honest. It, it is very, very unique. Um, I, there is nothing else in our portfolio quite like it. Um, and I don't think there's anything else out there quite like it. Um, so I, I wouldn't necessarily compare directly. Um, I would say that, you know, that there are a number of other investments that we've made in projects that uh, have similar attributes, but are tackling, you know, very different markets. And they use the power of blockchain technology to create something that was not previously possible, or to democratize power and economic access in a way that was not previously possible. Right. And so, right. I just want to zoom back to you know what I was talking about at the at the very beginning of this conversation and explain why I think the wealth transfer will be so big, mm -hmm. right? Just if you are a fan of history and and you think back to the pre fifteen hundreds um, in most of the world, businesses could not get that big, and the reason was that everything was kind of a sole proprietorship or you know a a trading guild. Um, and there was no ability to properly incentivize employees or managers. Uh, you couldn't really have branches all over the place. You had to personally manage your entire business. Mm -hmm. But then around the year 1500, um, in the Netherlands, they invented this idea of the publicly traded joint stock corporation. And this changed everything forever. Uh, because what happened is now you could reward managers and employees with shares in the company, and you could use this to better coordinate global economic activity. And so this created things like the Dutch East India Company, which you know was obviously one of the first global mega corporations. And so I, what I think happens with blockchain technology is it's another innovation on par with that one, where what we're creating is a new way to coordinate human economic activity. But this time, instead of all of the power and the wealth accruing to the managers of that company, you know, for example, you know, whoever the CEO or president of the Dutch East India Company was, uh, was basically, you know, like the head of a state uh, at, mm -hmm. at that time, just tremendous power. You look at like Mark Zuckerberg right now, or you, you look at, you know, Elon Musk, like they're, they're the heads of state for these giant entities. And what I think that technologies like blockchain enable and enable in ecosystems like Helium is for us to all own a piece of that and to own it from the very beginning and to not have to go and invest, you know, millions of dollars in order to get access um, and, and not, you know, have to meet some like accredited investor laws that were written back in the 1920s or something right. um, in order to be able to, to participate um, in this type of wealth creation and creation of, a, of an interesting uh, ecosystem. And you can do it through your labor, right? That, that's, that's the other very important thing is uh, you do not want returns to accrue solely to capital. You want to have other mechanisms to re have returns accrue to labor. Um, otherwise, you just end up with a system where everything is held at the very tippity top that owns everything. Um, and, you know, I, I just don't think that's the most efficient version of the world to live in. When you say returns accruing to labor, do you mean people who are working on a certain company having ownership in that company and, and gaining a share of the profits? Looking at Helium specifically, there are people in the Helium ecosystem that are Helium patrons. And what they're doing is they're going and deploying Helium-enabled endpoints across many, many different locations. That is hard work. You have to go to people's homes or offices, right? You got to convince them that, uh, hey, let me put this thing here in order to help create this wireless network. You have to maintain it a little bit, you, you know, um, in case the Wi-Fi goes out or something. Um, and you're doing that work. And in exchange for doing that work, you can, uh, you know, 
earn a lot of helium tokens, which you know may be worth money at some point. Um, and so that's a return to labor as opposed to a return to capital is I go put, you know, a hundred million dollars into AT&T stock and then AT&T does everything. Right. Um, so I, I think there's a, there's a very big difference there. Uh, the other big difference that I see that's enabled by uh, blockchain technology is I think we're going to see the emergence of uh, a lot of small professional teams or semi-professional teams as opposed to large professional corporations. And so by that, what I mean, you know, once again, focusing on the helium example is instead of seeing, you know, two to three giant telecom companies owning a country, what I expect to see are, uh, you know, small pods or small teams that say, you know, I'm going to own a city and let me team up with five of my friends who live here in, in, you know, whatever my city is. And we are going to set up the helium network for this whole city. We're going to, you know, upgrade it as new tech, new wireless networks become enabled, et cetera, um, in order to own this city. And so that's just like a smaller professional organization rather than a giant company. But there's still some um, aspect of, you know, people who are really working on this and not just passive. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I, I think it's especially true when it comes to things that are deployed in the physical world. So I co-founded a real estate startup called OneRent in 2015. And our goal was to create you know, like the, the world's most scalable property management company. And it turns out that like residential property management companies typically don't scale beyond 100 to 150 properties for whatever reason. And well, we found out the reason. The reason is that there's a lot of local expertise required. Landlords want to talk to someone that's local and they can trust and they want that local expertise. And, and local expertise is huge when you're dealing with things in the real world because there are many stakeholders, right? You have neighborhoods, these are communities and people don't just want outsiders coming in and, and either you know, managing homes or deploying wireless networks in their community necessarily. And so to that point, I think what you said is, is very true. And we're already seeing that play out with the Helium patrons. Uh, and this is also what you said in regards to returning to labor. I've seen examples of multiple Helium patrons who started at the very beginning uh, and because there were very few hotspots on the network, earned a greater share of tokens. And then once Helium tokens started being traded on OTC marketplaces or on exchanges, these patrons took their earnings from their hotspots and sold some of them back into USD or into crypto and bought more hotspots to expand their business. And this is a really interesting positive feedback loop that's happening with Helium where Hotspot owners and patrons are earning more money than they put in, right? They're getting a return on their investment and they're using that to reinvest and build the network even larger. When the network gets built even larger, the network is more valuable. And theoretically, if the network is more valuable, Helium network token will be traded at a higher rate. If the price of the Helium network token goes up, that again, returns even more wealth to the people who put in labor to actually build the network in the first place. So it's really interesting to see. And, and I'm obviously a very small time investor, like I'm just doing it for me. But when I look at an investment, I look on, is there some sort of positive feedback loop or, or sort of flywheel effect here? And that's definitely what I see when I look at Helium. Yep. I think the flywheel is, is what it's all about. Uh, if I had you know, one investment thesis, it would be look for feedback loops. Totally. And... <laughs> Uh, I think you described that feed, feedback loop very well. The the one thing I would add in there is just as the network gets bigger, both uh, horizontally, uh, you know, in terms of just covering more area, and vertically in terms of having more wireless protocols on the same economic layer, um, and having you know better density of coverage in dense areas, uh, then you see more and more usage of the network which is what really drives token value is usage of the network. Speculation is fine. Look, I, I speculate all the time. Like that, that is literally what investing is. Um, and sometimes there will be speculators, but you cannot rely on speculators for long-term value. It does not work. Right. Um, you know, in the short term, the market is a voting machine, but in long term, it's a weighing machine. <laughs> and it, it just really matters on, like, do people really want to pay for your service? Um, and in the case of Helium, I think that people really want to pay for this service. And that is what drives the value here. Uh, totally. This isn't a bet on you know, a bunch of people uh, memeing this coin into having value. Uh, 
um, th that could happen and it would be great, right? Um, but arguably, you don't need to believe in it for it to have value. Unlike something like Bitcoin, like Bitcoin, you need to believe in it for it to have value because it doesn't actually right. do anything, right? right? Uh, now, I own a lot of Bitcoin and this is not a knock on Bitcoin, but uh, you need to just believe. Um, and, and that's true for many assets in the crypto world. You need to believe that it has value. In this case, it actually does something for you. Yeah, I think this is something that very few projects in the crypto space actually do. And the only two that I can really name off the top of my head are Helium and Celsius, which of course takes external money uh, from investing people's capital they deposit into this bank-like product uh, and gains investment returns from lending out that money to institutions, which I think is really interesting. And that's another thing that I like to focus on is like, how does this bring external money into the crypto ecosystem? Because if you're just in this bubble of crypto people, you, you have this like attention problem where you're just trying to get all the crypto people to invest in your thing instead of the other crypto things. Whereas I believe that if you can bring external money into the equation, you have a much more sustainable business model. And Helium does that. There's massive demand for LoRaWAN network. I believe there's already over a billion LoRaWAN devices uh, deployed in the world. And where are they deployed? They're deployed where networks exist, like France and Germany. And I think we're just at the very beginning of how low the cost of LoRaWAN devices can go. And all that we really need is the network to reach those economies of scale. So not only is Helium bringing in external money, it's bringing in external money that's like dying to throw itself at the network. There are many businesses out there who are like, we need a network to connect sensors and we just don't have it. And as far as I can tell, Helium is the only attempt to bring that network to fruition on a global scale. One thing that I, that I think is an interesting conversation topic is separating the Helium blockchain and the, the economic incentive layer from this LoRaWAN network. The LoRaWAN network is the first wireless network built on top of the Helium protocol. I do not expect it to be the only wireless communications network built on top of the Helium economic protocol. What Helium really is, is it's a new business model for deploying and managing wireless networks. They started with LoRaWAN uh, because that was a very underserved market. Um, it had several attributes which were quite good for Helium. Uh, one, you know, the United States was the first market and the United States is massively lacking in IoT network coverage. Um, unlike Europe, which has, uh, you know, a wide LoRaWAN um, availability, uh, there just basically wasn't any in the U.S. Right. LoRaWAN has, you know, really long range, uh, which really helps when you're just getting started and you may not have the ability to deploy um, as many devices as are necessary for other wireless protocols. So, so it helps you kickstart the economic network effect, right? But, but this is what I see happening in the future. What I think is going to happen is we will see the LoRaWAN network grow globally. I think that this will drive usage on the LoRaWAN network built on top of the Helium blockchain. This will drive value to the Helium network token because of how the token economics work. And at the same time, I think that people will release new wireless networks built on top of the Helium economic protocol. Uh, that can include things like a Wi-Fi sharing network mm -hmm. or a 4G data network. Or in fact, uh, you know, something I've been brainstorming about is 5G data networks because 5G just requires such a high density of radio transmitters that it's going to be incredibly expensive, hundreds of billions of dollars expensive for centralized telecom companies to roll that out. Right. Uh, but with the Helium model of, you know, rent and labor being free at home and having this new system to um, coordinate that economic activity of rolling out that network rather than a giant centralized corporation doing it, uh, you know, perhaps that instead of being done for $100 billion could be done for $1 billion. And that's just a huge amount of wealth to be created, shared amongst the world. And so uh, I really think of the future of Helium, uh, the blockchain as being the economic network 
for all wireless telecommunications networks. Um, and, and that's the, the crazy, audacious, huge long-term vision that I have. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's what personally attracted me to Helium in the first place is that especially when I was in high school and college, I always dreamed of having this sort of shared Wi-Fi network. Like I remember I would go to a friend's house or just go to a new location and just end up so frustrated because I would pull up my computer, I'd pull up my phone. There are all these Wi-Fi networks. They're all paying for different subscriber lines and I can't connect to any of them. Even if I want to give them money, I'm like, I want to access the internet right now. I would be willing to pay five or $10 for even a 30 minute session. And yet even, even the so-called open wireless networks like Xfinity Wi-Fi or cable Wi-Fi or all those ones you see just going all over the place, there, maybe there is now, but at least for the longest time, there wasn't even an option to pay for access if you wanted to. And it just seemed they like such terrible. a tremendous waste. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know any, anything, any product that like the cable companies or the big, you know, telcos put out there, like they're usually just really bad user experiences. They don't actually care about the users. Like that's, that's a key thing. Like these telecom companies don't care about their customers. Right. They are monopolies. Um, and they know that you have no other choice. What are you going to do? Switch from Comcast. If Comcast is the only ISP in your area, like, so what incentives do they have to get Xfinity right? They just don't care. Well, it's really interesting with Xfinity too, because I have to hand it to them that Xfinity Wi-Fi was one of the most interesting, successful dark patterns that I've ever come across, where they just put this hidden wireless network in everyone's routers, make you pay for the router to have this rent this thing from them that broadcasts an additional Wi-Fi signal from your home and shares the bandwidth of your own internet connection. And it was really pretty ubiquitous. I mean, there's, it's really hard to go anywhere in a city and not see an Xfinity Wi-Fi uh, point being broadcast. And imagine if they had more foresight in building this into like a more open ecosystem. If they had done it at a better time, like now, I mean, they already have millions of installed locations. They already have the network. God, how would that even look? Like, would they take the Helium blockchain and apply it to... <laughs> of course, they probably wouldn't take the Helium blockchain. They'd probably make their own in some way, right? But how do you take I, that existing... I don't think they would. I, I think that they are stuck in the old paradigm. Right. They would want you to sign up for a monthly subscription. Uh, they would want you to pay an activation fee. Uh, and they're, they're just stuck in the old way of thinking because they're an old school corporation that you know, has no reason to innovate. This is the classic innovator's dilemma. This is how the innovator's dilemma plays out like kind of in the textbook definition from Clayton Christensen. Mm -hmm. What happens is you have these large companies that are providing a service which is you know, pretty good, but it's quite expensive, and the managers there are complacent. You're not an innovator and decide to go work at you know Comcast. You, you just don't attract those people. Um, and then you see startups come in or new entrants come into the market and they offer a much worse product at a much, much, much lower price, right? So like in this case, I could say LoRaWAN could be a quote unquote worse product for uh, most use cases because like I can't use my cell phone on it like it's not gonna right. it's never gonna power my video chat like LoRaWAN is not for that it's way lower bandwidth and um, you know it just like can't power that use case but the incumbents will see that and they'll say oh that's that's a toy thing that doesn't matter I don't I, I don't need to worry about LoRaWAN look at how small that market is I'm going to focus on the the higher end market I want to focus on you know LTE, and I want to focus on 5G, where people are willing to pay hundreds of dollars a month in order to get access to my services. But then what happens? Well, the Helium network gets better, and maybe you know it adds a new network. Maybe it adds 3G, right? Old school. 3G isn't that good anymore. But maybe it adds 3G because 3G is dirt cheap. Those routers are dirt cheap. You can put those, in, you know, in people's homes and with commodity hardware, uh, you know, for for a really low price. I don't know off the top of my head, but I but I know it's it, it's just been around for twenty years, right? That's and interesting. So, I had I didn't know that that the hardware is so cheap at this point. Yeah, and so, you know, maybe you, Helium adds that next, right? And 
it, the beauty of the Helium blockchain, by the way, is that it's permissionless. So anyone can go do this. Like, you know, one of our listeners right now could go and decide to code up this, you know, the, the router and, the, and the, uh, the connecting parts to make the 3G network work, right? And then you deploy that, uh, you know, maybe in some of the uh, less wealthy areas of the world that aren't well covered, right? Big telecoms will still ignore you. They don't care. Right, they 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 don't care about that market. They they are worried about the super high end market. Then maybe you know, as the hardware gets more commodified for LTE, you now have LTE on the Helium network. Yeah. What do the big competitors do? They think you know, hey, we're just going to focus on five G. Let's stay you know high end. Uh, we don't need to go and compete with uh, this new entrant coming in and like taking the really low margin business that we don't care about. Uh, we as managers of a giant corporation are paid on you know the the high end of the market. And then just gradually, um, the product offerings that the new entrant, in this case Helium, offers start to become better because it just has a different cost structure. Um, at scale, it is mathematically impossible for these large telecom incumbents to compete with Helium. They just they can't do it. You can't afford to pay all the sales, marketing, support, et cetera, um, and compete with a user-owned network that just doesn't pay any of those costs. Um, For sure. And so I think that what we're going to see here, and this is going to take some time. I think this takes, you know, 10 years uh, to, to play out uh, as I just described, right? But I think what we're going to see over those next 10 years is this just like textbook perfect play out of the innovator's dilemma. Wow. That's, that's definitely food for thought. So what do you see that? Let's go back to the 3G example, because I find that fascinating. So Let's take, you mentioned sort of emerging markets, but let's take a more mature market like the US. How do you see that type of 3G network rolling out in the US? That's a, that's a hard question, but I, I can speculate. Um, so let's talk about how much it costs to use a centralized telecom provider in the United States today. Mm -hmm. If I have a device that I wanna get on the AT&T network, I have to pay an activation fee usually something like $35, right? Yep. Pay that activation fee, and then I pay a monthly subscription fee, um, right? And I think the lowest cost of that is like, what, 10 bucks a month? Yeah, for like a smartwatch or something. Exactly, for like a smartwatch. Uh, you're gonna pay 10 bucks a month, right? Uh, what I could see is seeing those types of use cases, the smartwatches, like smartwatch probably doesn't do well on LoRaWAN, uh, you know, you, you probably want to send a bit more data than LoRaWAN can handle uh, to a smartwatch. There's probably other use cases too, like uh, really low fidelity security cameras and other, mm. you know, of these like mid-tier cases where you have devices that need to send data. Uh, they don't need LTE. They don't. They don't um, have enough economic value to justify being on the AT&T network. Um, but maybe they don't work well you know, on LoRaWAN because they just need a little bit more bandwidth. Well, that's where a 3G network could make sense. Now, once again, that's entirely speculative. I, I don't think that 3G in the United States is necessarily you know, the next best market um, sure. or technology for Helium. I think you know, focus on LoRaWAN, go global on LoRaWAN, really make that work, and then um, you know, probably do something like Wi-Fi next uh, because I think oh, Wi-Fi is just... Uh, a way bigger market. Um, there's so much more data transmitted over Wi-Fi, and there's a lot of people in cities that would love to just be able to pay for the data that they use on Wi-Fi. Um, but I think that you know there are so many different opportunities. I think the the idea of a 3G network with the Helium model in the U.S. is actually a very interesting one, because I mean you talk about developing markets. Why would you do that? Well, because they require a much lower cost in this this model enables a much lower cost. But frankly, there are so many underserved communities here in the US, people who can barely afford to put food on their plate at the end of the week. And they're probably overpaying, you know, 20, 30, $40 a month, best case scenario for a really budget wireless carrier just to do basic stuff like be able to communicate with their friends and family. I think the telco, like the telecom industry in general is just quite diluted about like how good their stuff is. Like LTE was definitely a nice step up from 3G. I don't think 5G is going to matter to almost anyone in terms of just the sheer like speed increase. All the stuff we want to do on our phones, we can already do it fine over LTE. Like 
the, the most data intensive stuff is what, like video chat? Maybe that gets a bit better. But even go back to 3G, if I, had, if I turn off LTE on my phone right now, it still works like 95% as well as I want it to. And maybe like I can't FaceTime with perfect quality or I can't stream in you know, 1080p or whatever, but like almost all the stuff that I do can be done on 3G. So what happens if you're able to come in with a 3G network in a developed country that's like five to 10x cheaper that can allow normal people to connect to the internet for like three bucks a month? Yeah, I, I think that that's entirely possible. I don't know how much it would cost. I would need to actually do the math on what the average data usage is. Yeah, I, I totally made up that number. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do think it could be 10 times cheaper, right? And so to me, there's two fundamental types of innovation in the world. There are technical innovations and there are business model innovations. Mm -hmm. uh, technical innovations is you invent a new technology. Now, a classic example of that would be you invent a new material, right? Like you invent carbon fiber nanotubes, and that enables you to make a bunch of stuff that you previously couldn't. That is enormously valuable innovation. Uh, but then there's also business model innovation, which is by configuring the way that the economic participants in the network act differently, you unlock value. And I think where Helium really excels, you know, there is some technical innovation here in terms of how the blockchain works, et cetera. Uh, that's cool. Like, I, I like it too. But I think that the part that really excites me about Helium is the business model innovation. Because the business model innovation here is just, you know, uh, amazing. It, it blows my mind how powerful it can be because I think it would enable a, you know, wireless coverage network for even 3G or 4G that's literally a tenth of the cost of the incumbents. Um, and it's not like anyone has a particular loyalty to their telecom provider. You know, right. you, you don't actually care for Comcast or at and I, I think that people would be more than happy to switch for a lower cost solution that provides just as good service, especially if they could own a piece of it. I think that's the other key thing that, that's very, very important is they can own a piece of it. They can actually support the network and provide... Um, some coverage and get some ownership stake in the network. Whereas, you know, for the average person, you're never going to own anything meaningful out of AT&T. Like that's just not going to happen um, unless you're, you know, extremely wealthy or something. Yeah. And I love the idea of greater utilization of resources. Like there are so many people who pay for their own subscriber line to the physical internet, whether that's cable or fiber or God forbid you're still on DSL. It's probably... 90 plus percent unused, like all the time, right? Every single home around you probably has the same subscription. So you can imagine the impact it would have on a community if say like, you know, oh, Uncle Tushar has a wireless uh, or has a wired connection and he shares it with the rest of us via his hotspot or his, you know, wireless connectivity, maybe he has an antenna on his roof and we can all share that. And I think that's a just an incredible improvement in efficiency in the way we use our connectivity. Yep, absolutely. So clearly you spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. And aside from your role at Multicoin, you've also started a nonprofit called the Decentralized Wireless Alliance, or DY for short. And I'll read an excerpt from your introductory blog post, which anyone can read at dy.org. That's D-E-W-I.org. Quote, today I am pleased to announce the launch of the Decentralized Wireless Alliance, a new stakeholder in the Helium ecosystem. The Decentralized Wireless Alliance was created to serve one singular purpose, connect the world's devices. The members of the Decentralized Wireless Alliance will work tirelessly to build a future in which there is permissionless, ubiquitous, cost-effective wireless connectivity for all humans and machines. Billions of sensors powering smart cities and a smart planet will be connected to the internet. We believe that in the future, everything that can be connected to the internet is connected to the internet. We believe connectivity should be implied by default, not as an afterthought or optional add-on, end quote. And before I get to the, the actual content of that, just to clarify, the blog post is written in the first person, but the author is just listed as Decentralized Wireless Alliance. So did you write that post? Uh, I did write that post. Okay, great. 
So I've read the entire post and it's intriguing. And I, again, I recommend everyone go check it out, but it's still not entirely clear to me what DY will actually be doing on a day-to-day -day basis. So I'd love if you could give us a better idea of what the, what the members have been up to, maybe introduce us briefly to who else is involved and, and who you're looking to bring on board. Yeah, absolutely. So I started the uh, DY Alliance because I knew that there need to be some more stakeholders in the Helium ecosystem uh, that can play some different roles. I think that's a really important part of decentralizing power within our ecosystem, within the Helium ecosystem, right? Um, and this whole movement is all about decentralization. Uh, we do not want to go and trade AT&T for Helium Inc. Um, that, that is not the outcome here. I, I know you had Amir on an earlier uh, version of this podcast and, and you can ask him, you know, he has no desire to go be, you know, the CEO of a, a global wireless company. <laughs> um, that, that's not the intention. What we want to do is decentralize power and um, spread that out amongst all of the ecosystem participants. The Alliance is uh, a, an attempt to, you know, help drive that forward. And so uh, we've been hard at work over the past six to eight weeks or so, uh, recruiting members to the Alliance um, and putting together some interesting marketing proposals um, in order to get more attention for the Helium network, as well as working on dev grants uh, for independent development on the Helium network that is uh, not funded by Helium Inc. So are you raising external funds for those dev grants? Yes, our, our members are donating um, in order to join the uh, Alliance. And those are the funds that we use in order to fund dev grants and marketing campaigns, educational campaigns, that kind of thing. Okay, interesting. Would it be accurate to say that DY is similar to uh, how many other crypto projects have like the company and then the foundation and DY is closer to like the foundation? Or is it a little more separate than that? You could say that. I, I think that that wouldn't be a totally inaccurate comparison. Um, we are not, uh, you know, beholden to Helium Inc. We're an independent entity, um, and we can kind of you know do whatever we want. Um, so it's not. In a lot of these uh, other crypto projects, you will see that the foundation and the corporation are really the same thing. Um, Sure, right. they have the same, same people, people or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's different here, right? Yeah, I think that's an important distinction to make because a lot of times, the foundation, what it really is, it seems to me that what it really is is just an entity that can do things that you can't do under U.S. law. Basically, I won't comment on uh, you know how other entities have set up their, their foundations and, uh, and their purposes for that. Um, I, I think that, you know, it's all very nuanced and, and there's a lot of variables here uh, and, and we don't necessarily have full info. I do think that uh, the United States needs to pass some sort of comprehensive guidance or, or provide guidance for what is and is not permissible in the blockchain industry um, or be left behind. Because I can tell you, Multicoin invests globally, um, and we see that the pace of innovation outside of the United States in blockchain technology is incredible, um, and it's actually much easier for our portfolio companies that are in Singapore or Hong Kong or even mainland China to go faster than the United States, which is kind of just like sad for the United States. I'm an American. I'm an American citizen. I want to see the US retain its leadership position in global technology. I think that's what's given us a ton of economic growth. It's created a lot of power for the United States across the world. Um, and I think that blockchain technology is going to be, you know, one of the, the big defining technologies of the 21st century. And so, I would really love to see the United States, you know, pass some reform on on this to better enable that innovation to stay onshore because the technology is not going to stop. It's just going to go somewhere else. And so if you don't pass reform, like, you know, Singapore will own it or, uh, right. you know, some of these other jurisdictions will just be the ones who become mega wealthy. The U.S. became mega wealthy because we owned 
uh, you know, the late half of the 20th century in terms of industrialization, as well as the early internet. If we don't own the third phase of the internet, this web 3.0 revolution, then I think, you know, we get left behind kind of like Europe used to be a dominant economic power because they were first at industrialization. But then the U.S. is clearly, you know, dominated the, t- the 20th century. Um, and I-, I think that that's because innovation was easier here. Yes. And, and because of that, we have a lot of technical talent that also comes with a lot of experience in certain technical fields that I think are highly applicable to blockchain. And I think we risk losing that if we don't have a more favorable regulatory environment. So I agree with you and that I really hope that the regulators in the U.S. can sort of figure some things out uh, when it comes to just removing friction for creating blockchain companies. And I think just yesterday we had a great piece of news, or at least what I interpreted as great, which is that banks can now be custodians of cryptocurrency for their uh, depositors. So did you have any specific thoughts on that news story? This is kind of like breaking news. I thought it was a a good development. It steps in the right direction. Um, And I think it could be quite positive for the industry. Uh, What I'd be looking for that would get me much more excited, though, is clear guidance around uh, securities laws as they relate to blockchain technology Mm -hmm. and these various tokens. And much much more specifically, what I would love to see is the SEC issue a statement saying, you know, give, give us a clear, bright line test of what is a security and what is not a security. They told us Ethereum is not a security. And they've shown us through some enforcement actions against some projects that, you know, some things are securities, but it is not clear and it creates lots of problems. Yeah, that's what Amir also brought up earlier as the main source of friction. And he mentioned something called the Howey test, which if I recommend going back and listening to episode one if for Amir's description of that, if you don't know what that is, because I definitely learned uh, a lot from, from what he said. So moving back to the DY Alliance, who else is involved here? Like if it's not the Helium team members themselves, who are the stakeholders? Uh, so we have an independent board um, of, uh, you know, just people who we thought could add a lot of value to the Helium network. Uh, and, and these are all independents, um, which I think is quite important. Uh, we intend to announce several new members, uh, you know, so, some big corporate members as well, over uh, the rest of 2020. Uh, we aren't quite ready to announce that just yet, uh, but uh, keep an eye out uh, for those announcements. Um, and then we all also are working on several community engagement plans. You know, for example, right now I'm drafting up plans for an economic advisory committee and a technical advisory committee um, and thinking about just how those mechanics will work, who the initial group of people should be. Uh, and then very importantly for myself, how do I make sure that you know, we take the board control out of it, right? I do not want to actually govern this network at the at the DY Alliance board level. Like that, that's not the goal either. Um, the goal is to facilitate community governance of the network. And so something that makes this design process a little bit harder is it, it would be pretty easy to go and design all of these structures in the traditional corporate sense where you know the, the people who started the entity retain most of the power and decision-making, but that is explicitly not the goal. Uh, the goal here is how do we create the structure in a way that, uh, you know, for example, I could leave and the, the thing, you know, still works really well, um, right? Designing a, an organization like this in a way that, you know, the, the designers um, can leave and not centralize too much power around themselves is uh, a lot more time consuming. And so it just takes a little bit of time to to get things out there. So one of the stated goals of DY is to own and manage the Helium improvement proposal process, which is currently owned and managed by Helium, as far as I can tell, although I do see involvements from DY members there. It's listed under the Helium repo right now. Is that going to move to a DY repo? How exactly is that all going to play out? When we say own and manage, that does not mean any sort of ultimate decision-making power, 
what that really means is more like janitorial work of cleaning up the GitHub commits um, and making sure that conversations keep moving, making sure that everyone is aware of the conversations that are happening and has an opportunity to contribute to those conversations. It also includes things like translating what could be a complex technical proposal into words that you know regular people can understand and understand the implications of. So uh, you know, I want to be very clear: DY does not plan to actually control that process. Um, we chose the words "own" and "manage" to just mean you know, kind of maintain and enable everyone else to participate in. So community governance is is absolutely key here. Uh, in terms of how it moves over. Um, I do expect that the DY Alliance will manage all of the core repos for uh, the Helium blockchain, um, just kind of like Bitcoin Core manages the core repos for the canonical implementation of Bitcoin. Right. So that that's really kind of the, the vision, um, but we have to build towards that and work towards that and make sure that when we actually manage those repos, that it is done in a way that is in stewardship for the community. Um, and so we really wanna get some of these other pieces in place first, such as the technical advisory committee, the economic variables uh, advisory committee. We wanna make sure that the community governance is really built in before we pull those repos over. I see. So you're taking this sort of careful measured approach, not moving too quickly. Obviously, you need to move at a certain pace in order to keep up with the innovation and, and everything going on around you. But it sounds like you want to have these management structures in place, have the community feel good about what's going on with DY before you sort of move on to the next steps of actually putting your hand, putting DY's hands into sort of everything that's happening. Yes, and, and very importantly, recruit the members from the community into the DY Alliance to actually do that work and have control um, over those processes. Uh, because once again, you know, this is all about the community and uh, the, the people that are involved um, and, and making sure that they are empowered through this organization. So Helium has taken a very firm stance on not involving themselves in exchange listings. And I understand why they're taking that approach, but I think it's still important for HNT to get listed on more exchanges. And this is a hot topic in the community that people always wanna talk about. And of course it's tough to talk about in the official channel because it's not allowed, which again, I understand completely why that's not allowed. So are either Multicoin or DY or anyone associated with either entity interested in taking the role of being the champions for seeking out listings on new exchanges and maybe even paying fees to list on certain exchanges that charge for listings? You know, we have seen some exchanges list uh, H&T already. And that's because it's a permissionless asset on a permissionless blockchain. Anyone can go and list H&T. Uh, they can do anything they want with it. And there is nothing that we, nor Helium Inc., nor any of the community members can do to stop them. And that's what it means to be permissionless. These exchanges are in the business of facilitating trading and liquidity in order to charge a fee and earn money. If they think that there is a profit opportunity by listing Helium network tokens, and they think they're going to get some users by doing that, uh, then they're going to do it. But uh, you know, centralized entities facilitating listing um, is unlikely. That makes sense. So if community members want to get involved in DY in the next, say, one to three months in the near term, how can they do that? And are you guys hiring for any positions? Yes. Yes, we are. Uh, we have several exciting announcements coming, uh, one of which is going to be you know, the various membership tiers that are available and the perks that come with it for being a part of the DY Alliance. Um, but the first big announcement that we have is that we're seeking our first employee who will be a director of operations. Um, I actually posted the job posting uh, within the Helium Discord 
channel. It's one of the pinned messages in the general channel. So anyone who's listening to this, please go check it out. Um, and this director of operations role is something that I think is, is really interesting, uh, you know, for someone who's passionate about this technology, passionate about the community, um, is hungry and wants to have the opportunity to you know, interact with a lot of the senior people in and around the community um, and help facilitate the growth uh, here. Uh, so I think that, that that's a very exciting opportunity. Um, and I would be working, you know, pretty closely with this person personally. So, you know, if you are interested, um, anyone, please email us at careers at dydewi.org. Um, and we will you know, take your application into consideration. If you want to boost your chances, interact with us in the Discord, um, you know, with the various board members. Um, and that, you know, that will help, of course. Um, so we'd be really excited to uh, see who we end up working with and grow the organization from there. That's awesome. Yeah, I think the Discord is a great way for people to connect. I, again, I want to reiterate what you just said is join the Discord, discord.gg slash helium, because this is really where everything is happening in terms of involvement. You can talk directly to Helium team members. You can talk to other community members. There are so many cool people building cool stuff. DY has a strong presence in there. And again, I wouldn't be interviewing Tashar right now if I wasn't in there. So uh, I strongly encourage anyone to join and get involved. Learn more about DY. Their website is dy.org, D-E-W-I.org. And Tashar, is there anything else that you'd like to add before we wrap up? Yeah. There, there's one thing that I wanted to say, and I think this is kind of a, a cool thing. It's about DY and kind of the, the, the why we do it and the feeling that it creates. We called it the DY Alliance for a reason. And it's because it's meant to be a rebellion. This is the Rebel Alliance going up against the evil empire of, you know, AT&T literally has a Death Star as their logo. Uh, and, you know, we want <laughs> to go wrong. after the big centralized empire, right? We have, the, we have these big centralized empires that control everything. They don't care about their users. They're capricious. They are rent extracting. They, uh, you know, just overcharge. They have massive profits. And that is who we're going after. That's who we're going to go and beat. And so that's what the, the DY Alliance is all about. We're about killing the empire and we want you to join us. I love that. I love that so much. Let's kill the empire. Well, Tushar, thank you so much for joining me today and looking forward to chatting again soon. Absolutely. Thank you.